0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Tone Rays podcast. I'm your host, James, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, Timmy Long. Hi, everyone. Sean is on the production. How are you, Sean? Not too bad of you. Offering Georgie's in the audience. How are you, Georgie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is about your fourth time being here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Past past guest as well. And your friend is in the hot seat today, Edwina Grosvenor. Is that how you say your second name?
0: Yeah, you can say it like that. Yeah. Grosvenor Grosvenor. Yeah. It actually means the fat hunter in French. Oh, really? The Fat Hunter in French. Anyway, moving on. I know, I know.
1: <laughs> but you're a criminologist and you're a philanthropist and you do a lot of work around prisons and prison reform and advocates for for prisoners. So we're delighted to have you on because that's kind of what we do too, minus the philanthropy, but we're working on it. When we get the means, we'll be able to do it. But before you get into that, do you wanna just tell us like how you got into that or why you got into that?
0: Yeah, so um, I've been working in prisons for 23 years now. So since I was 18, but um, I can definitely track it back to uh, when I was about 12 years old and my older sister was about 14 and my parents were obviously having discussions in the background I know this now because I've got a 12 year old daughter and mm. two other kids and um, and I think they were worried about how they were going to educate us about drugs and you know life um we were going to inherit wealth so I think that was playing on their mind um, and how they were going to stop us snorting our inheritances up our noses, quite frankly. You're, de- <laughs> so, you're
1: descended from the Romanovs amongst other kind of... Yeah, you've yeah, done your research. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting because like, we've never had somebody with that kind of a heritage on the studio and most of the people listening mightn't ever have come across somebody with that type of heritage. But w- what's it like knowing... I'm like, very aware of that when you're a child. Are you very aware of, I suppose, your background and the privilege? Are, uh, sure. how, you, how are your parents trying to keep yeah level-headed
0: yeah i mean i'll come on to that but sort of just on on the first question so when i was 12 and they were worried about the sort of drugs they basically decided that they weren't the right people to educate us about drugs because they knew we wouldn't listen to them which was correct (laughs) so they took us to um a drug rehabilitation center in liverpool Mm. on a place called hope street and um my sister and i went into this room and we sat down with two heroin users a man and a woman, they were in a relationship together and they just were like, ask us anything you want. And honestly, it was, had the most profound effect on me that hour, because if you're a football fan, it was like meeting a football star. Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds really weird, but I was like, nobody ever would allow a child to sit with a heroin user and just, this is like, I for, I don't know why, but I knew age 12, that it was an incredible, Experience. a privilege might sound too condescending, but it was just like mind blowing for me was, in a good way.
2: Was that your first time ever coming into contact with somebody who'd used drugs or was addicted to N- Knowingly or, that
0: I knew of, yeah. And the fact that it was just like, ask whatever you want, don't yeah. worry. And and I did. And so, so that was where I track it back to. Um, then yeah, growing up through my teenage years, um, in answer to your second question about was I aware? Yeah. Um, so we lived, I was brought up in a house called Eton Hall in Chester. Yeah. Sort of probably, yeah, looks like a palace and it's behind black and gold gates. And the drive is like a couple of miles long. Yeah. Too long. It <laughs> doesn't need to be that long, but it is. And um, and I went to a very it's a normal school, really. Um, there were kids who, you know, their parents were dentists and doctors or sort of, you know, yeah. I wasn't in a school where there were lots of other people like me who had titles. Yeah. So we got a little bit of bullying for having titles. Even the teachers would say some weird things sometimes. Yeah. But quite frankly, everyone was being bullied for something. You're either too fat, too thin, too ginger, too blonde, too, yeah. too <laughs> something. And so our thing was like, oh, well, you're a lady and your dad's a duke. So people give us... Crap about that, but it didn't bother me too much. Um, But I was very aware when I was 15, um, I started doing work experience. And one of the things I did for work experience was to work at a charity called Save the Family. And it's where mums went as a last ditch attempt to be able to learn how to look after their children properly so that their children weren't removed from them and taken into care. And I was only there for a week. And again, that had a colossal impact on me. And um, the day I got there, there'd been a suicide of a mother and, you know, and the children were sort of there. And um, I was just, and they, they, my mother was the patron of that charity. And so they knew who I was. And so they were constantly saying, do you have blue blood? How much pocket money do you get? And, you know, firing questions, which was quite intense. And, and a lot of these kids, their dads were in prison or they were drug dealers, you know, all the stories. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember thinking, going home to my massive house in the evening and then being like, this is really weird. I've just like been born into this family and that's really, really lucky. Mm. And they've been born into that family. And like, what chance do they have? And maybe if they lived in my house,
2: mm. they'd
0: be happier. So, so it was really early on when all those big moral questions of yeah. Sounds like happening. you had
2: great awareness yeah. at a young age, like for somebody, when I was 15, the only thing that was on my mind was drugs yeah. and drink and criminality and um, women. You know but at yeah. that age like you're you're inside this setting and it's work experience and you're you're seeing what's going on and you'll have this compassion and empathy and go home then and and say to yourself like Do you know how fortunate am I not yeah. many 15 year old children have that yeah kind of awareness.
0: and I suppose I've got my parents to thank for that, yeah, right you know definitely. they took me out of my lovely little home and just went boop, there you go, yeah. sink or swim yeah and even though it was only five days, it felt like it was months or years because it's still so, I remember being so nervous and walking up to that front door to the house. And, Mm. you know, there were often rows. It was really sort of, you know, there were lots of women there and it was, could be quite chaotic just for the nature of the people that were there. But that kind of, that that then set me on a path because, you know, I remember going for a, a day trip with the kids to the zoo and they saw some people and obviously the people, triggered them somehow or some of the men looked like one of their dads and they were talking about prisons and they were talking about death and gangs and i remember being like even though it was kind of i was like oh it's really out my comfort zone but i was like "Mm, it's kind of interesting as well i wonder what prisons are like and Mm. i'd love to know more about gangs and so there was definitely a yes i'm a bit scared but i quite enjoy being a bit scared (laughs) that's been a bit of a theme of my life as well like enjoying kind of being out of my comfort zone
1: And when you finished school, did you go straight into university and what did you study?
0: So I never really wanted to go to uni, but I'm glad that my mum kind of convinced me that I should. Um, So I finished A-levels, did a gap year, travelled. The first time I went into a prison was um, in central jail in Kathmandu when I was 18. What was it like? So it was the women's side of the prison. And when I went in... And by the way, all my other friends had gone up the Gold Coast of Australia in a camper van were well, getting what? drunk. And I'm like, why am I in a prison in Nepal? But I was like the happiest 18 year old ever and yeah. definitely had a more interesting time. Um, and the women's side of the prison, you know, they had been washing and so the washing was up on the line. They were all brushing each other's hair in the sun and, um, and it was quite domestic. And there were a few kids running around in there as well. And then I came out and went round to the male side, didn't go into the male side, but that was a completely different story. Um, there was a big white man, actually, a big westerner standing at the gates and they were like, we're not going to go into the male side. And I was like, yeah, perfectly happy with that. And um, and I said, what's he in for? And I kind of knew what he might be in for. And it was um, offending against children. And there were little boys locked up in there with him.
1: Oh, my God.
0: And I remember just being like a little part of me kind of breaking. But that was the first time I'd been in a prison or experienced prisoners and um mm-hmm. and again that was another moment that was just like yeah. so now i can look back and see all these moments that really kind of
2: yeah
0: either changed the course of my life or just kept keep you know i've always been on the prison trajectory mm-hmm. um so nice.
2: when, when when something like that happens in life like that situation looking at him in the prison and knowing that these young boys yeah. as well, that's that's something that you don't ever forget. No. You know, it sits with you. It's like an experience that you have in life that um, you, you'll never forget it because it just gave you so much emotion. It may be fear or something, something uh, to a dog or an experience. And that's just one of, it's quite similar to something like that. It stays with you in your mind.
0: Yeah, exactly. And also looking at things like that, because I always think, right, How do I've seen something bad, how do I fix it? Mm. And then you kind of go, Would it really be difficult to not have little boys in that side of the prison? Couldn't they be in the other side of the prison or isn't there somewhere else they can go that would be better? And you think, well, that doesn't seem like a particularly difficult thing to fix. Mm. So I was always horrified. But at the same time, I weirdly always left thinking, oh, my God, but this is so easy to change. And it's obviously not easy to change, is it? But I always had that optimism.
1: Yeah, but it's like uh, with myself and Timmy, um, because we're we're lucky now that we've come through kind of difficult lives with addiction and prison and stuff like that. Um but when you get this situation then where we're working and we're educated we're in a good place but you know all these people that are left behind mm-hmm. and you know like some of the best people you've ever met have been in prison some of the best you know uh, the, the, the toughest experiences many of them victims themselves and a lot of potential so that's kind of like why I me and Timmy wanted to do this um, is just to kind of not leave them behind I feel like if we can reach out to them because this podcast is shown in prisons in Ireland as well so it's like through the podcast and uh through the through the media we might spark something in them you know that they can yeah. go to the education or the psychologist or the counsellor mm. and start their journey because that's all we did
2: mm, I, like he, he just recently <coughs>
1: I received a letter
2: from a uh, prisoner I only received it uh, recently and it came through somebody else and he just telling me how much he enjoys the podcast, how much it helps him, because they're in the prisons, and they can watch him on the, the prison video channel. And he said he's after getting motivation from it. He hasn't been sentenced or anything like that. And then he turned around and he says, um, "He says maybe when I get out, you'll give me an opportunity to work. You know." And and, and like what brings it back then for me is, is this: right, if if I. I'll give that young lad an opportunity because if I didn't get the opportunities off other people that were there for me, I wouldn't be sitting here at the moment. And it's very important that we we don't just walk or talk the talk, we also walk the walk. You know, and we could do a lot more walking the walk. But two of us have full time jobs, we have families and things like that. But like when I read something like that and Seeing the change that we're actually creating for the people who really do matter the most yeah. to us or those because
0: and it's a great responsibility as well yeah. isn't it And that's you it. know sometimes a bit like oh yeah. can i help yeah. all these people if everyone asks yeah. for a job you're not going to be able to say yeah. yes <laughs> you are you know. that's the other side it <laughs> you know it's well, uh,
1: very rewarding then though like when when you're in prison and you're speaking to these vulnerable women or when you do media appearances if somebody sees it or when we do stuff like this the people listening in the prison might be the first time they have ever f- felt understood or they, mm. could, I, they feel like, no, oh, well, that person has my back or that person sees an ace.
0: Yeah, or why do they care? Yeah. Like, women always say, why does someone in your position care about someone like me? And I was like, what do you mean in my position? They're like, well, you're a lady. And I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't mean... Th-. Mm. Like, if we really are honest with each other, it doesn't mean anything. Mm. As And, you know, and it's really interesting because people sometimes behave towards me in a way, because they're a bit nervous and don't understand how they should be with me, and I and I completely get that. So I spend most of my life trying to make people feel more comfortable around me. Mm-hmm. um And you know, my bank cards, for example, I had my title lady taken off because you know I'd be in a supermarket and you know, occasionally I'd be like, yeah. I'd get questioned on it. um And uh, mm-hmm. and so I'd sort of say to people, you know, it's. And when I say to prisons, there is literally nothing different. Okay, mm. yes, yes, there's differences between you and I. I've got this and I've got that and you're in here. But really, at the end of the day, I yeah. don't mean to sound cheesy, but we are human. Yeah. And it's only class and society and all these invisible made-up things that yeah. kind of make us different. Yeah. Um, but ex- I'm the same if you want me to be the same. Exactly. But I'm different if you treat me differently.
1: Exactly. And the la- over the last few years, we've had just... Normal Joe Soaps in here, Um, regular people with interesting stories. We've had the leader of our country in here, the Taoiseach, Mehal Martin. The Minister for Finance was in here a few weeks ago, but all just regular people with their own stories, they're they're overcoming their own obstacles Mm -hmm. in their own lives. And when you take away the titles and the status and all that, what you left was is just people trying to get by, trying to trying to be the best person they can be, look after their families and kind of be good citizens. And that's it in the end of the day, isn't it?
0: Exactly. And life's more relaxing when you see life like that. I know. Yeah. You know, everyone gets stressed. Yeah. Everyone's got family problems. Everyone's either on a diet or trying to give up the booze or, you know, yeah. Yeah. everyone's just doing human things.
1: Yeah. But you're, uh, you studied criminology.
0: I did, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I went to university after my gap year, um, studied criminology, and wrote my dissertation on uh, children yeah. being born into mother and baby units oh. and um, the separation effect of the baby when they're being taken away from the mothers. Mm. And so a lot about the attachment theory and then obviously adverse childhood experiences, we now call them, don't we? Um, And early childhood trauma that people talk a lot more about. Um, But you know, I did that degree 20 years ago. And then recently I just did a master's in, um, it was a criminological one, but in crime scene management and forensic evidence. Mm. And then wrote my thesis for that on female victims of rape and how they're portrayed by the tabloid media. that was made for grim reading (laughs) um but yeah so i guess i'm a bit of a bit of an obsessed criminology fan
1: are you following the andrew tate stuff at the moment
0: well yeah i've got three kids in school and so you know we've had the letter from school to say by the way we're we are going to be tackling this at age appropriate time Mm -hmm. with the Children, and. I think
1: it's very damaging for uh, feminism and kind of women's rights as well. Around like uh, this, because he's got such a big following, and people are very quick to jump on and say uh, he's been set up and the, there's conspiracy against him. And the, the women like that, like it's so hard for to get a conviction of something like rape and stuff like that, you know. But um I don't want to get you dragged into a culture war now, like, but it's, it is very damaging, isn't it? Having somebody
0: like him with yeah. such a platform. Yeah and what's terrifying is that he's got so many followers but you know what I learned about doing the research into um, rape for my thesis was um, well first of all 98.5 percent of people get away with the rape that they commit so it's virtually legalized by default in England Um, and then of course we've had this big case of um, another Met Police officer in the same unit as Wayne Cousins who killed Sarah Everard. This yeah. guy is called David Carrick, and fought, he's pleaded guilty to 49 counts of rape and keeping women under the stairs and in basements and controlling them. a Met police officer, yes, yeah, just happened this week.
1: Yeah, he had a cellar in his home. Yeah. Like
0: um and then people don't go, uh, you know, <laughs> <right>. Yeah, <laughs> don't, don't bother, it's really depressing. Um and of course, you know, what women have been saying for a long time is we don't really feel very safe reporting it if it does happen because people don't take it seriously. You're not going to get a prosecution, so actually why bother? Um, it won't go to court for a year or two. You know, are you gonna live in that sort of And then equally you might end up with a police officer, you know, yeah. like Carrick. And of course. These are the bad apples. Yeah. And there's many, many brilliant police officers. I spend loads of time with the police mm. and they're some of the best people I've ever met. Yeah. But of course there are entrenched institutional problems that particularly women have been talking about for a very long time. And all you get is apologies and we'll do better. Mm. And it sort of just gets really boring.
1: There was a case <laughs> there was a case in Cork a few years ago. I, I thought I was seeing things, but it was under the the paper and the defence solicitor uh lifted the underwear and in the trial basically like she was asking for it look what she was wearing the french knickers or something like that how how that can even be allowed in the court of law is mind-blowing
0: absolutely extraordinary but it just shows doesn't it you know it's Mm. the year 2023 Mm. and that sort of still goes on or she was drunk she dared to wear a short skirt Mm. she dared to listen to music on Mm. a jog yeah (laughs) Mm. you know And never do they talk about male violence. I know. And particularly in the media. And, you know, and I spent a long time researching this. Um, And it always, there was one that really got me, which was, um, it was a park in Southampton. So down near me. And it was like, honestly, this article was talking about, and it almost made it sound like the park was responsible for the rape. We're (laughs) going to make our parks safer. We are uh, taking out the bushes and we're going to put more CCTV in. And it's like, oh my God. It wasn't the park that raped the girl. Mm. It was the man. Why are we not talking about male violence? And mm. why is no one talking about interventions and the help that these men might need?
1: What
2: is the background to so, so many rapes? What, what what's, what's going on for men for, from there? Well,
0: I mean, the, that's a really good question. Like, and well, I think it's, you know, the next 10, 20 years, something's gonna have to happen, right? You know, I spend a lot of time with the police in Hampshire and, um, and they say, all we're doing is going to domestic violence. That's all we're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, there is an epidemic of violence against women and girls. And then you look at the terrorism unit, which obviously has a big budget, because that's to do with if a bomb Mm -hmm. goes off in London and sort of... (laughs) But actually how often does that happen? Not very often touch wood, but of course they're resourced properly. So I'm not making an argument against disbanding the terrorism units, but actually all the police are going, oh my God, we just don't have enough people to get to all the domestic violence that's going on, Mm. which saw something like a 200% increase during COVID when everyone was locked down. And then the police will say things to me like, oh, well, you know, during the World Cup, well, it's the World Cup tonight. I'm like, yeah. And they're like, well, there's going to be more violence against women because... And I was like, oh, yeah, because people get more violent during the football. And I'm like... And, and I said, is it... And if England lose, it's really bad. He was like, if they win, if they lose, it doesn't matter. It's alcohol and mm. there'll be a lot of violence in the, in the home. <laughs> just yeah. like, oh, my God. It's just
1: kind of accepted. Yeah. And COVID <laughs> as well saw a big rise in domestic violence in Ireland anyway when men were, mm. they, they didn't have the employment to go to and there was mm. you know, any dynamics that might have been uh, there in regular times were very heightened during COVID when everybody was in home and uh, maybe the drinking yeah. at home kind of escalated as well.
2: Relationships were definitely tested during COVID,
0: everybody's
2: relationship. Yeah, well,
0: I think we can all relate to that, <laughs> can't
2: we? <laughs> Everyone's, you know, because yeah. I think we really got to know our partners in life, our children. Jeez, I never spent so much time with my children <laughs> and it was great. <laughs> You know, I actually enjoyed yeah. it. I got to know my children for who they were. You know, know exactly.
0: Please. I think right. it could, it, it, you know, surely it was a positive experience for some people in that mm-hmm. sense that they got to spend more time with their kids and it was nice. Yeah. But
1: what's, what's the prison system like in England? Is there is it true that some of the prisons are privatised and some of them are state-runner? How does it work?
0: Yeah, so there's about, I don't know exactly how many prisons there are. There's around 130 something, about 135. Um, only 12 of them are female prisons. And then you've got like another estate, which is part of the male estate, which is called the long-term high secure male estate. And there's like 17 in that group. And that's where the really long-term, yeah. dangerous, violent prisoners will go. Um, and there's only 3,500 women in prison compared to around 81,000 men. Mm. Um, around 75% of those women are in for nonviolent crimes. Mm. And the majority are in for less than 12 months. So Certainly that gives disability. you a bit of a yeah. a background to sort of what it looks like. Um, I spend most of my time currently in the female estate. That's where I've worked in the male estate too and done lots of things there. But um, for me, you know, what I'm really interested in over my career, I've sort of done lots of different things and I've worked in Parliament and the House of Lords. I'm interested in policy and legislation. And you know, but what I'm interested in is changing the system because the system is broken. A lot of people will say it's at breaking point. It's like, no, it's broken. It's been broken for a long time. And everybody, anybody who works in the system knows that.
2: What would your changes be?
0: Well, so what I'm working on at the minute um, is a project called Hope Street. Can you all remember that yeah, from Liverpool, Liverpool. Yeah. and that is about um, creating a community justice system that has been properly thought through about the referral routes of how women would come in how it relates to police probation the magistrates drug and alcohol services all the other services that might be involved in a woman's recovery um, so we, lots of people have been saying for years to the government well if you've got that many non-violent women in prison serving some of them are serving weeks some of them serve days so long enough to lose a house if they have one long enough to lose their job if they have one, and their certainly kids. they lose their kids, and women are usually the primary carers, so there's lots of men in prisons who are dads, but they're not because people often say, yeah well men, men are dads too, and I'm like, no, I know that, but they're not usually the primary carer, and yeah, when they right. go into prison, there's usually a woman, their mother or not, or yeah. a grandmother or to look after those children when the mother goes, there's not usually a dad yeah and you can probably relate to this here in Ireland as well. It's usually not a dad keeping the home together, getting them dressed for school and sort of keeping the home functioning. It just Mm. doesn't work like that. Um,
2: But sometimes, are the children better off taken away from the mother, do you think? Oh,
0: sometimes, Sometimes. for sure. Sometimes, for sure. But we have an over-reliance on sending children into care. Um, And you know what we all argue to the government, which the government has accepted, that if a woman has committed a non-violent crime they should get a community sentence now the reason that the community sentences have disappeared really as an option is because um our government played around with the probation service and they tried to privatize it everyone said don't do that it's a terrible idea it's not going to work so they did it anyway and it was a terrible idea and it didn't work so now they've put it back into the public hands and as a result there's a recruitment crisis. Um, Probation officers have too many people on their books. Mm. There aren't enough courses in the community for people to be able to do their community sentences. So the magistrate's like, well, I can't give them a community sentence if the courses aren't out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically what we're trying to build over the um, county of Hampshire, which is where I'm from, is Hope Street, which is um, will give the magistrate a sentencing alternative to custody so the magistrates will say I know she's nonviolent, violent I know she doesn't need to go to custody but you show me the safe place that I can send her I can't tag her into her home because there's a domestic violent partner yeah. or I can't tag her into home because she doesn't have a home she's a sex worker she's sleeping rough you know all these different and actually the community for women presents a much more dangerous place than it does for men of course the community can be dangerous for men but in a very different way mm. in the sense that women are more likely to be abused by the person to whom they say I love you mm. and you know and behind a woman's offending and this isn't making excuses by the way but this is yeah. just to try and understand where it's all coming from and I know you guys know this area well but you know behind the women we see there's a gang lord, there's a pimp there's an abusive partner you know there's sort of mm. these characters generally speaking when you look at a man you don't usually have a female pimp a female lord. yes there are of course female abusive partners but it's it's very different, yeah. and actually, I sat on a board advising the government for about five years on the reforms of the female prison estates. And I think they, I think they used to think that we were saying treat women preferentially, and it was really interesting because at no point had anyone round the table ever said that because that would be stupid. Yeah. Um, what we were saying is you have to understand violence and you have to understand offending in a gendered way, yeah. because then you can build the right services. But you can't just take a sort of one-dimensional view of men and women in violence Mm. and expect to build services that are going to help anyone.
1: Mm. Yeah. Do you think that uh, offences related to addiction, like possession of drugs, um, shouldn't be criminalised in the first place and that community supervision might just cast the carceral net even wider? And most of these people shouldn't be before a court of law anyway. They should be before before maybe a a committee where there's a social worker or a doctor or somebody there to kind of offer them support.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we could take a much more caring approach. We know prison doesn't work.
1: Mm, Exactly.
0: Um, There might be the odd person who goes in and it's such a horrific shock, but I'd argue they're the people who, you know aren't on the criminal trajectory. Yeah. You know, it might be, yeah. I don't know, posh boy from a school looking at Google maps and accidentally sort of hit someone in his car, or I don't know, do you know what yeah, I mean? I there's I there's I the different types of offending, aren't yeah. there? And the career criminals. And and I think, you know, we've just got to get more sophisticated about it mm. because prison does not work. And when you look at the age group of, I think it's um, young men between 20 and 22, the reoffending rate is like 87% in our country. Mm. If that was a business, it would not still be an operation if it was a sack. school. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, oh, gosh, this doesn't work. Let's build more prisons and do more of the same. You know, mm. it's like really weird. Mm. So, yeah, um, you know, and obviously there's a big debate on should we legalise drugs and sort of pull the market, mm. pull, um, sort of remove the market for them. Um, I don't think any politician will ever be brave enough to do anything that radical. Oh. Um, but, yeah, I, I, think, I think the big gap for me is also the services in the community. There needs to be more anger management courses. There needs to be more sort of help for drugs and more rehabilitation centres. And
1: Down through, like, um, people might not know about England, the UK had a heroin-assisted treatment there for the last over 100 years where the GP could actually prescribe pharmacy-grade heroin to chronic heroin users. If all other treatment options failed, they were still using that they could prescribe it. But it was through the war on drugs, you know, it was uh, discouraged, let's say, by the, the UN and, and stuff like that. But they piloted it again there uh, last year um, and it was a huge success. Mm. But again, it's very controversial, you know. Mm. It's like this radical thing. But it's like there's sick people yeah. and that's the medicine and if you give them the medicine, then it takes them out of the black market and they're not distributing, you know, bloodborne viruses. and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you think about how much it costs, I don't know how much it is in England, but in Ireland, it's nearly a hundred grand to keep somebody in prison for 12 months. Mm. It's about a quarter of a million to keep an under 18 in juvenile for yeah. 12 months. Yeah. You imagine what you could do with a fraction of those resources in the community.
0: Yeah. yeah, I know, and then you'll spend, the taxpayers spending all that money and then they'll come out and reoffend. <laughs> and it's just like, <laughs> great, this is a really good way to spend our money. I know. And you know, and what we're talking about in the, in the female estate to begin with is, it's nothing radical. You know, so we're building Hope Street, which will be 12 different buildings around the county. The mag- A woman will come up to the magistrate and the magistrate will now be able to say, oh, great, I don't need to send you to custody mm. and you've got two small children. Um, I can send you on a community sentence to Hope Street. That can be your address. You can go with your children. Um, you can detox there if you need to. And these are the hoops you need to jump through to as set out by the court, mm. um, off you go. Or a woman can come on remand if appropriate, because sixty percent of women who go into prison on remand get found not guilty. So they're another massive number that are choking up why, the prisons. Why is this so high? I don't and know. Probably in
1: compare to men, like do you know, you think if they're going on remand, that the girl, the police, and the, the prosecution, or you know, they probably have some evidence on them. Why? Why? I don't
0: know. I don't know.
2: Do you know Hope Street? Um, what do you actually do with women when they're in there then? Say for example when a woman goes in there and she's drying out from her own or alcohol or whatever it may be and the kids are there, what what would you do to help them to maybe recover and to create awareness for her around the damage she may be causing with her children around yeah. her and watching it and maybe for her to To understand what's going on for in general have you got counselors or psychotherapists absolutely so
0: first of all if they're detoxing then um so we'll have foster carers on our staff and um we've just recruited um uh, or will recruit i don't know where we're up to on that the children's services manager um so there's a crash there and the children obviously will only stay with their mothers if appropriate You know, if it's not safe for them, the social services will make that decision anyway. It won't be down to us. Um, Each woman will be on a bespoke program. So it's not like we're just going to cookie cutter them all Mm. and sort of say, right, you'll all do this. Um, Some of them will need more anger management. Some of them might not need that. Some of them might not need very much at all. Some might have a supportive family out there. Mm. The majority, sadly, we know don't. Um, So absolutely, it's about a bespoke I don't want to actually use the term regime, but because yeah. it's kind of prisony, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. they'll all be on their own sort of bespoke program. So they'll be doing budgeting, there'll be stuff around, you know, using when you're ready to pop the question. The last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At blue you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. computers of course mm-hmm. um, and all the things that they might not know how to do which is what they need to be able to yeah. do just to function that, in everyday yeah. life.
2: That is a big big yeah. deal is, is giving people life skills yeah. and maybe having courses where you can teach them how to fill out applications and where they can get um, different services because a lot of people that are caught up in alcohol and drugs a lot of their time is spent just thinking about where they're going to get another score yeah. where they're going to get drink you know, and they never, I suppose, when you have them in this position and they're actually, there's a bit of clarity coming to their minds and the fog is lifting, it's a great way to teach them life skills. Mm. And we we done something recently, it was, I think it was Mayo and they had a recovery college and one of the modules on the, the in the college was um, teaching people life skills, Yeah, giving them skills to live, you know, because a lot of us, I had no life skills. Yeah. When I stopped drinking and drugging, I didn't, I didn't know nothing.
0: Exactly, and sort of emotional intelligence and what do you do with your feelings and how do you yeah. manage? Because I imagine, you guys will know, um, I don't, but when you come off your drugs as well, I imagine all those painful feelings come to the surface that you've been blocking with those drugs, yeah. right? And so you have to be able to manage that huge rush of mm. maybe the past coming back for yeah. the first time and
1: yeah you're right and we're, we're talking about, we're, we're writing a book at the moment with a ghost writer so uh, when you're talking to her about your life it brings up a lot of stuff for you from your past but I, she was saying like I, I would engage with the different services in the prisons you know and with the best of intentions but then when I get outside the gate it's like to me, as Timmy talked I had no coping skill other than using a drug to help me calm my nerves or to relax everything Be
0: stable yeah.
1: yeah and it's like when you go outside like you have to go to the social work for now, you have to queue up, you have to fill out this application from. you have to go and register as homeless well, to get this, it's like, no, I go to the GP and I, the chemist and I go to the dealer and then yeah. as bad as it is, you're just stoned and it's just familiar, but uh, it's when you go to the treatment centre or um, aftercare as well, I add, it's like you're minded for the first few months of the process, you know, where, like, you have a support where you go for a bit of the day, you have a key worker when you come home, You've, you're in a, a room or a house with other people like you, you know. And I think in, in Ireland, we've a lot of um, treatment options for residential treatment, but we've very little uh, recovery options for after when they get out. Okay. And that's a big problem. Like, I was lucky to get into a, a halfway house belong to the Simon community here in Cork, Homeless, but that was like the only house of its kind in the city. And there was such a demand for it, you know?
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think that I know you have a housing crisis here and there's one in England too. And so, um, the way we 're going to organize it is that um, the the main building that the women will come into first um, there 's eight flats and beds for twenty four women and their children, um, but then we 'll have houses of multiple occupancy dotted around the county because of course a woman might come to Southampton. But the perpetrator might live in Southampton, it might not be safe for her, Mm. she might need to relocate to another area of the county. Um, So we'll have those houses sort of dotted around. Um, And then, you know, that will be the move on accommodation, then our outreach workers will go and support them in their houses, as opposed to what usually happens when you're on probation, it's like... Oh, right, yeah. I know you can't tell the time or read or write and you don't have a watch, but you need to get from that side of the county to this side yeah. of the county to get to your anger management course. Yes, I know you've got twins who are two, but you need to get there on public transport with the no money that you have. And, um, and and yeah, and if you don't make it to your course and if you don't get through your course, you're going to breach your license and you end up back in prison.
2: And do you know why she, end up, do you know why she would end back in prison? Is, is because of the stress that that creates so hard. It just creates so much stress and you just... Exactly.
0: So actually all... Yeah, Yeah. what is the point? Exactly. And so all we're trying to do is sort of not... You know, because people go, Hope Street's revolutionary. It hasn't been done before in this depth. You know, we've been working on it for about six years. We'll be opening imminently. The build is about to finish. Women will come in in April of this year. Um, But it's like, no, we are setting people up to succeed. Some of them will fail, of Mm. course but we're not setting them up to fail mm. and then just watching them fail and throwing money at that because that's really weird. Mm. And that's what we're doing at the moment. That is our system.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, so, yeah, maybe yeah. in a couple of years' time yeah. I'll be able to say, oh, it's, it's all working it sounds, really well.
2: It, it sounds fantastic what, you, what you're doing and, and I think um, other countries and other governments should should notice something like that and, and see where, where where it goes. Yeah, I think there's huge
0: potential for it yeah. because it's designed to be the methodology um, behind it has been designed to be replicable and scalable mm. so that you can pick it up out of one county mm. and do it in other counties and it's there for the women for, from that county.
2: Is yeah. is that happening for men then as well? You don't know, is the same kind of system there for men because in this country, if a man is in prison, right, and he is trying his best to, to get sober and get away from that lifestyle... A lot of the times, the environment he's leaving to go into prison is the environment he's put back into. Yeah. And sometimes that environment is full of siblings who are involved in drugs, drug addiction, criminality, and they're going back in. In England, is there somewhere where lads who are going through this, this what I just said, like a half a like Hulshnake.
0: a Yeah, I think I know less about um, the sort of... Men leaving prison mm. and and the data. What I would like to do because I was talking to the builders one day and they were like, "So when are you going to build Hope Street for men?" And I said, "Well, look, I can only do one thing at a time, and it's kind of a full time job just trying to do oh. this. We um,
2: to set it up. If you like, yeah. Well, exactly. <laughs> Come
0: over and do that. But I said, yeah. so, but what I am interested in doing actually is maybe just the brain work around if I was to design Hope Street, because Hope Street has been designed to be trauma-informed and gender specific, right? So therefore, if I was to design it for for men, I would have to go through exactly the same steps. So we would collect the same data, we do it all the same way. And it would be really interesting to see architecturally how we would build it. Mm. Because, you know, would we have a crash? I'm not sure. Mm. Um would we actually have a workshop for men to do yeah. you know which we don't for the women and mm. and Hope Street was designed in consultation with justice involved women so mm. we would do the same and we would have men feeding into the architectural design because that's the only right way to build things for people. Um but I did say to the builders one of the biggest things we've had to do with Hope Street because we'll have um, a coffee shop that's open to the public so it's a semi-open building um, and it's not that it's anything like a prison because these women should be in their own homes on a tag so they're able to leave come and go and some of them will have been released from prison Um, but what we have to be really really careful of is men turning up trying to access the women and the children and it's not like the prisons call us and go oh by the way this really violent guy who's um, you know the boyfriend of one of your women you know it's not like you get the head up they just turn up outside the building and we, that is one of that's our biggest fear and it is going to happen so we just have to be ready for it so Do we have a have, prison
2: officer there or someone that resembles certainly
0: a certainly not officers no because that for someone the women would not security, work yeah of, of course okay. um and we've designed it so that we've got good lines of sight okay. onto the pavement and actually the site that we bought that we knocked down and built on was really important because mm. you don't want it out in a field in the middle of uh, this countryside because yeah, yeah. that's terrifying and then the sort of women are quite vulnerable mm. um so you want it in a busy place where there's sort of lots of things going on and there's always cars going past so um so i was saying to the builders do you think if we had Hope Street for men, we'd be worried about the women turning up trying to access the men and they all laughed and they were like, <laughs> we wish. <laughs> yeah. But it's a really interesting point, isn't it? Yeah. When you flip it on its head and we got planning permission through the first time for Hope Street, which we were shocked about actually. Mm. And I wonder if it was 24 men, would we get planning permission through?
2: That's a great. that was remember not. the <laughs> Yeah. Remember the, the, the Um I think there was a halfway house supposed to go somewhere in the city over by McCartan Street. And because it was going to attract people from the
1: home, homeless people. They were going to use that for the women coming from Limerick Prison. The, it's on Patrick's Hill. Uh, it was cancelled. It was cancelled, yeah. 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 Residents in the area put yeah. in a yeah. petition They were
0: cancelled. Exactly. Uh, so I think, so therefore in the design, so we were designing Hope Street for like five, six years before we started looking to buy a plot and architecturally design. We were designing yeah. the methodology. And you'd have to do the same. So therefore, if you're like, I don't think we'd get planning, then you have to be more creative, don't you? Be like, right, so how do we work things out for men? How will we make it work?
1: Do you know what what it reminds me of? There's an organisation in Ireland called Cool Mine and it's a drug and alcohol treatment. It's an addiction centre, but they have two facilities specifically for women and children. And one of them is in uh, West Dublin, but it's in a suburb uh, but it's kind of away from the housing estates and it's surrounded by trees so you can't see it from the roads you know and it's secure um but in there then it's li- they have like the the women and the children the babies they're all together and they're all healing together and it's a beautiful community mm-hmm. but they recently opened another one in limerick there um last year as well but um what's bi- it called cool mine cool and if you're interested i m- make contact with the ceo because i used to work there uh, I love the name name as well. It sounds very like what you're talking about, like what you're building. Um, Exactly,
0: sort of healing environments and a bit like, you know, Limerick Prison, um, which, you know, I'll be seeing tomorrow. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because you've got to be careful with language because some people are like, that's disgraceful. (laughs) These people have committed crimes. And, you know, and I always kind of say to people, yeah, I get that, but... I think we're all agreed that we want people to come out either less dangerous, don't we? And mm-hmm. they go, yeah. And it's like, right, well, I know it's really unpalatable, <laughs> but if you do want someone to come out less violent, we do actually know what we need to do in order to make that happen.
2: Yeah. Do you, so we, we start, need to do it. We started this conversation today talking about um it, you could be born into any life. You could, you could be born into a life where it's complete poverty or there's a lot of wealth. But people tend to forget that people are born into lives where they have no control over it. Like, I didn't have a control over the life. James didn't, like, people in Limerick Prison, Cork Prison, we have no control over it. And some of the situations that we're born into, they mold us as human beings. You know, Some of us cut off at a really young age because of stuff that happens to us and we just cut the line. So we go on then, we've no trust in society, we've no trust in people, you know, we've no understanding how life should be or how to work or how, how to process emotions and feelings. And one of the main areas of why we, we do this is they change people's perception of people who are in prison. no, you know, people do bad things and they deserve to go to prison, you know, not everybody. Cause some people are just sick may have psych- psychological problems and, and etc but what we try to do is just give people a little bit more in their minds and, and just to, just to understand and the whole emphasis of what we do is is sharing people's stories so when people hear the background of someone's story and why they became yeah addicted to drugs um, on the streets in prison People start opening up a small bit and and, and it's education, I think, mm-hmm. is educating people around these issues mm-hmm. and why people turn out in different ways. Yeah. It's all about the look of the draw. Mm-hmm. At Absolutely.
0: The the and I do think more could be done at schools. I know there's a lot to cram into the national curriculum, but I think mm-hmm. justice is such a big topic i do a lot of work in the crown courts and you know they're extraordinary environments but you know we've got all these kids growing up who have absolutely no idea of the consequences of their actions mm. you know we've yeah. got a law in england called joint enterprise which is like right well you might have the knife and you might kill someone but you're standing next to him so you're going to go to prison for life too mm. because he's murdered someone it's as simple as that yeah. and you know and then you tell kids that how like, what you know, and it's really important if you commit a crime, you get a criminal record, you're never going to America. You yeah. know, it's like
1: even some pretty for, big things even, that
0: people
1: need to... Even if two, if two adolescents have consensual sex, you can be charged with a sex crime mm-hmm. if, the, if they're underage, you know, yeah. if the parents want to take care. But some of the young people and their families, they don't, they don't know that. No. But you're a sex offender and that's never leaving your record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And I think what you were saying there as well was important is around a critical education. I remember when I went into prison for the first time when I was 18, and I see, like, there was uh, six landings and A-wing, three on A and three on B. And, uh, and A-tree was all fellas from my estate, you know, about like one kilometre radius, about 30. And then on, on B-tree was like all travellers, you not know, different traveller clans and families. Then there was a lot of Polish, Nigerians, Romanians. There was people then from uh, council estates in Waterford and Kerry, and you just kind of accept it. But it's only when I got older and I started studying social science and criminology and stuff like that, I began to look at that and think, no, they're not all bad people, not all travellers are criminals, not all people from my house and estate are born into. There's loads of structural forces at play as well, and it's not about looking for excuses, but it's just to get things. Yeah, understanding. Yeah, Yeah, exactly
0: and the sort of trouble that we're actually creating by our systems. Yeah. And that's why I'm so interested in system change, because sick systems create sick people. Yeah. And, um You you, know. you went
2: on about education, and I know George is probably going to love this, but I think a, a massive part of it with the education as, as well as, is a lot of children that are in school aren't getting the education to meet their needs and their ability and what happens then is, and it happened to me, because I wasn't understood in school, they didn't understand what was going on for me, why it was so disruptive, why I didn't understand what this teacher was saying. I was classified as a child then that was bold and kept at the back. But what, where, if we start implementing all these assessments at a young age and start understanding the kids that are in the school, instead of teaching them norm like we teach the, 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 like the education system is what we can do is start filling in the cracks in the system where all these children with learning differences and other needs are slipping through and what that stops then as well and this is this is my understanding of it is if a child spends more time in school because they're enjoying it they won't go on the hop and if they're on the hop from school which is um, the Mitch from school they're causing antisocial behaviour. They're robbing. They're using drugs. We're going to stop drug addiction down the line. We'll stop homelessness down the line. Prison sentences. Mm -hmm. We have to educate children. You know, they have to get an education. They have to understand how life works, how their emotional system works, how to process emotions. Mm -hmm. Because if we don't learn these things at a young age, what happens? We will use alcohol and drugs to soothe ourselves as we get older because the doctor's not going to give him to him because he thinks he'd go to prison if he does, you know. So that's my understanding of it. That's yeah, one way yeah. we can definitely help yeah. it as well.
0: I completely agree. And um, my organisation is one called One Small Thing. And actually, a lot of the work that we do is about... Um, putting therapeutic interventions into prisons uh male prisons and female prisoners but it's all about them addressing the trauma that they've suffered Mm. and we train the prisoners up themselves to be able to lead the groups because it works better and then they all start going because they're like oh great well if it's not an officer leading the group then I'll definitely go if it's one of the other people off the wing and um yeah and just that thing of what you're really angry because you were sexually abused as a child well you're completely right to feel angry. Yeah. And actually that's a legitimate, healthy response, mm. but actually you need to make sure it's not harming you and other people. Yeah, yeah. So guess what? The really exciting thing is, there's things you can do to help yourself that don't cost anything, mm. yeah. uh, you know, and of course some people need big psychological interventions, but quite frankly, who has the money to access them? Not very many people mm. and certainly not people in prison. So, um, so I think, you know, I'm the forever optimist, you know, there's, mm. there is a huge amount of stuff that we, can be doing, um, and I think our tra- our prisons should be trauma informed, trauma responsive, mm. trauma specific. You mm. name it, you know, because they're traumatized systems. Yeah, they're traumatizing places to work in. Yeah, you know, let alone to serve yeah. serve a sentence in.
1: Talk to us about the clink.
0: Oh yeah. So oh,
1: that's- yeah. <laughs> oh yeah.
0: <laughs> that one. So
1: that's another organisation you set up.
0: Um. So I was one of the founding one investors. Of the founding investors. Um, so I can't lay credit to um, to the idea. So there was um, a prison officer. Um, he was the chef in the prison at the time. And he sort of was like, he is half like Italian and then half East End lad in London, really a real character. And he was like, there's no reason why we couldn't have a fine dining restaurant inside a prison, open to the public. And we were like, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. absolutely ridiculous, <laughs> but I love it. And he was like, no, you know, these men have got so much potential and it's such a therapeutic thing to be doing, working with the food and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, he's, and um, anyway, so I was asked to put some money in and I said, well, if you find other people to put the money in, I'll put a part of the money in, but come back to me when you've got everyone else thinking he won't get anyone else and he did he came back and he said I've got all the money so I was like okay fine and um and then I got quite involved in it um and sort of recruited the first chief executive in who sort of then did 11 years and rolled it out from one clink to two clinks to three to four I think we got to um so fundamentally for those people listening who don't know um we started building fine dining restaurants inside prisons so the prisoners were trained up to be able to cook the food to serve the food um the environment was kind of like glass tables ambient lighting nice pictures on the wall not like a greasy spoon cafe like this is fine dining the food they made the pasta from scratch they made the sauces from scratch they the fish would come in whole and the fish would if you wanted a coffee it was like would you like a macchiato Mm. with oat milk you know it was proper so so that by the time the men had gone through and got their GMVQs and sort of all the different things they needed, they were able to leave to get a good job, not just flipping burgers and McDonald's. Yeah. Yeah. They really were able to go to the, um, to the smart restaurants in London and get a good job. Um, but the other amazing thing that we hadn't really thought about, we were like, yes, it'd be nice if it's open to the public, but the paying public could literally come into these restaurants. So Brixton Prison, Highdown Prison in Surrey, Cardiff Prison in Wales, and then we had one in a women's prison in Manchester in style. And so what that did was allow a sort of a whole swathe of general public to be able to come in and learn about prisoners.
2: And the preconceived ideas. Was this a section onto the prison, or built onto it?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, the one in Brixton Prison, inside the walls, it was the old governor's house, so just through the main gate Mm. where the vans would go in and out. Um, So a building inside. Style on the prison property, but sort of outside the main walls. Mm. Um, And Cardiff Prison, just outside the walls. And then down view inside the walls. High down, sorry, inside the wall. So you had to go through the exercise yard yeah. to get through the door into the restaurant. Mm-hmm. So you go from this like horrendous prison environment, then walk through the door and there'd be like classical music playing, mm-hmm. and you're just like and the men would be walking around in their uniforms looking really smart. And it was incredible. So we'd often get, you know, busloads of old people coming in and sort of, you know, they'd get really excited and they'd come in. And people might have preconceived ideas and be slightly like, well, do the crime, do the time, type of thing. But then they'd see the men nervous right? And really wanting to do their best and to be able to get that pea soup onto the table without sort of slopping it around and being really upset if they'd marked the bowl, you know, because they were trying to do it right. And I think it really was an incredible space to sort of bring down those barriers and to get people really thinking about, do you really hate this person? Yeah, Maybe they've done a bad thing, but they're not a bad person. Yeah. So they're incredible places. And so Brixton um, became one of the best on TripAdvisor. It was in the Oh, yeah. top five restaurants in london that's for weird. ages i know and i'm not foodie at all and yeah. i you know i never thought i'd end up in the restaurant trade but prisons has taken me in weird places <laughs> um but you know people wanted to go and you can go in for breakfast you can go in for lunch um you can go in for dinners on certain evenings when the regime right. allows is
2: it? yeah that's what i was just going to say is it all down to uh, the timelines for for serving for food, is it down to say you get up maybe eight, there's a close then a seven for lockdown. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so it's, it's quite good. So if, if you ever wanted to do a dinner, so I'd often invite like policy makers or journalists in to have like those sort of impact dinners yeah. um because they were a great place to do it and no one had their mobile phones right so you'd get everyone's yeah, yeah, attention and then it'd be like right you're gonna have to eat up because literally the men are leaving at <laughs> seven o'clock so in a way people liked it because they knew it wasn't a dinner where you'd be sat around for hours yeah, getting really yeah, bored it's yeah. like no you know it's time for lock up
2: there was no lock-ins anywhere there were no lock-ins. lock-ins for a few yeah no exactly what else you doing yeah.
0: um So I have my podcast, which is called Justice. Um, So there's Hope Street, there's the podcast Justice. And a bit like you is, you know, listening to all the chat about criminal justice, whether it's through the papers or um, on the news reports. And it's like that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of these issues. You need a deeper a deeper knowledge of justice actually it's really important to all of us so i'll in- interview people like the chief inspector of prisons i interviewed a guy who'd done double life sentence for a double murder he was talking about forgiveness i've interviewed victims of rape but you know it's sort of a bit like you guys it's yeah, sort of whoever yeah, yeah. is related to justice and things like the parole board you know what the hell does the parole board do why should we care mm-hmm. um probation system a lot of people i don't think even understands what the probation system is um and it's really important people know so and i just enjoy that i don't my husband's always like how many listeners have you got and i'm like i have no idea i'm a female i don't care i just really enjoy it
1: um the topics you spoke about there we've covered i've had very similar people like that in this jurisdiction yeah
0: yeah exactly and then as i said you know so we've got um under the banner of one small thing we have all these trauma trainers so we go into the prisons and um, train the prison staff but we also do third sector organizations we've trained um like england boxing to be trauma informed they were running workshops in a prison they were like god we're really aware that boxing's quite violent we're working with men who've had violence how can we do this in a more sensitive way so that was incredible production companies who are wanting to interview people who've suffered trauma and they're like Mm -hmm. actually how can how can we get the best out of yeah, the people yeah. we're interviewing. So we will train them. And that's been really- Yeah,
1: that's great. That's
0: been, you know, there's a huge, cause it's, it's not about prisons, is it? It's about people yeah. and it's about the fact that we all go through shit and suffer shit. Yeah. Uh, excuse my French, but it's true. Yeah. And we all need to know how to deal with that and process it. And yeah. you can't just go around hitting people and stabbing people. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know we need to know we need to understand our emotions and be able to
1: and you can't lock somebody up and hope they'll never again commit a crime and what we do is not soft on crime it's it's intelligent on crime because uh, a lot of the time prison is not a deterrent for people it's just something that they'll endure until they get out but you have to provide meaningful employment and meaningful opportunities so that we have less victims down the line and that's kind of why we do what we do isn't it yeah
0: exactly one funny thing that i am doing that is actually like my second job that will make you laugh because it's weird and British. So I'm the High Sheriff of Hampshire. (laughs) Yeah, see? I knew that. I was going to giggle. So you'll be like...
1: Not just the Sheriff, (laughs) the High Sheriff. (laughs) The
0: High Sheriff. So, uh, yeah, I thought I'd mention it because it is hilarious. So basically, it's um, the oldest office bar the monarchy in our country. So it's been around for thousands of years. And um, you... So you become the high sheriff, you only hold office for one year. You have to be sort of chosen by the queen, now the king. um, And you are the king's representative in the county for law and order. You have to wear an incredible outfit, which is like velvet and with ruffly sleeves and like a weird ruffly neck thing and a hat with an ostrich feather on it. And it has to be an ostrich feather, yeah. (laughs) Someone said to me once, and it was really funny because they were completely accurate, they said, you look like the love child of dick whittington and austin powers oh, Jesus. yeah and honestly i was like you are absolutely right i can't argue with that so i don't always have to wear that outfit but when the ceremonial things in the high court and all the judges are in their regalia then i would have to be in my regalia um so i spend a lot of time as a result with the police uh, but it's access all areas justice system for one year so obviously for me i was like that's amazing just an extension of what i do anyway yeah. So I am able to say to the police, right, can I come out with you tonight and do the nighttime economy with you? They're like, yeah, sure. Turn up at the station at nine. We'll come back in at five in the morning. Can I go to a crime scene? Yeah, of course you can. Can I come on a drugs raid? Yes, of course you can. Um, It's absolutely amazing. So um, it's really given me such an insight into. Did you ever write a book? Huh?
1: Would you ever write a book? Well, I'm experience. also
0: dyslexic, so that fills me sort of with absolute horror.
1: Oh, yeah, you need get a ghost ghostwriter. Writer, like yeah, exactly, did, yeah. a non-dyslexic,
0: <laughs> <laughs> a non-dyslexic ghostwriter. Uh, but
1: it'd be great to get your stories and text for people, especially people yeah. in prisons and stuff that they could read, and you know, maybe speaking about the different experiences in prisons in different countries and different jurisdictions, and all the stuff you're doing. I saw very interesting stuff.
0: Yeah, thank you. And yeah. important. Yeah. Yeah, Well, luckily I just love it. And I just think I've got, you know, so I was like, oh, I'm going to come and see my friend Georgie over there in Cork. that will be nice. And then I was like, actually, if I'm going to Ireland, I could probably get myself into a couple of prisons. Mm. Um, So, you you know, when I went on holiday to Sri Lanka and as we came into the hotel with my kids and my husband, he went, have you seen what's across the road? And I was like, of course, I've seen what's across the road. And it was the local prison. And even I was like, it's a bit of a busman's holiday. And Dan was, my husband was like, no, Dweenie, you've got to go. I was like, really? Do you really want? I was like, all right. So we were talking to my guide and I was like, you don't happen to know anyone who works in the prison, do you? He was like, yeah, my brother's the doctor. So I was like, oh, could I maybe pop in and have a visit? He was like, yeah, sure. So the next morning I left the kids eating their croissants with my husband and off I went and (laughs) spent a bit of time in the prison. But I think... It just adds such excitement to yeah. travel as well. Yeah, you know, yeah. my husband's a historian. He needs a battlefield. I need a prison. Yeah. So if you ever meet us at a bar on holiday, we're like the weird couple talking <laughs> about yeah, yeah, yeah. battles and prisons and violence. Yeah. And, well, I hope yeah. you
1: enjoy our prisons while you are over here.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, me too. I'm visiting Limerick and Cork. So, yeah, I'm we're looking actually, forward to that.
1: We're
2: actually doing something um, ourselves and is it March, it's mental health week within the prison system. So we're going to every prison in the country.
0: Oh wow, how many is that? 14.
1: 14. Okay. Because some of the prisons have um, women and men. Yeah. And some of the prisons have protection landings and main prisons and there's some open prisons. Mm -hmm. So we're going to visit everybody over the course of seven days doing mental health workshops and assistance workshops and stuff like that. Amazing. There's a big commitment for us because it's a lot of travel around the country, but it's going to be an amazing experience. Yeah. Yeah. And we're really looking forward to it.
2: Yeah. And it's very important as well that, by myself and James, sharing our experience with the lads and giving them some different pathways to the life that we have today, it gives them hope
0: absolutely you
2: know, and that's very important and um
0: you know you're gonna have to gear yourself up for when all these men start coming out and they're gonna yeah. they are gonna oh, be yeah. calling you yeah. aren't yeah. they and yeah again it's a big responsibility isn't it and it is trying it, to it is, help all those uh, people yeah. that you've inspired and i sometimes feel the same a it it's like ah yeah.
2: Do you know what the downside of it is we not having the time yeah. not having the time yeah. and
1: and uh, what's the right word um the resources the resources but we're, the we're talking they're now both setting up uh, our own foundation so like we get asked a lot of talks in schools and youth clubs and probation fund projects and all that but we work full time so uh but i but we set up long story short i want more people but we set up as a private limited company when revenue started coming in here donations and stuff just for tax purposes but it means we're excluded for grants from the government, yeah. you know. But mm. with a non profit status, I think that we can start bringing in grants and then do it full time. So yeah. that's our goal for 2023. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, yeah. good luck with it all. <laughs> <laughs> thank you.
1: Thank you. And listen, uh, it's been lovely speaking with you. Yeah. Thanks, well, thank thanks you. Thanks for coming on.
0: Thank you for having me along.
1: Yeah. Thank
2: you so much. Yeah. And enjoy Limerick Prison tomorrow. I will. <laughs> yeah. I will. Thank yeah. you. God bless. See you later. Thanks, lads.